I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, sickos. A quick little note before we get into today's regular scheduled programming. At the very end of today's episode, I'm going to tag on a little treat for y'all. And it is the trailer to the new podcast, which we are launching here at Snack, called New Wave. Uh, it would tickle us pink if you took a moment to listen to the trailer at the end of today's episode. And by the way, our guest, Dr. Michael Dunbar, uh, he's actually a featured character in this new show. So the show has launched. It's available now wherever you find fine podcasts. And uh, we encourage you to go follow, give it a listen and let us know what you think. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to Routine Checkup. This week, we sit down with Dr. Michael Dunbar, a professor of surgery at Dalhousie University, to talk all about the future of healthcare. Let's talk about it. Guys, guess who's excited? You. Yeah. Always. And me. Always. And me. But the three of us are. And the reason why we're excited is because our guest today is, uh, well, here, I got a little intro, okay? Our guest today, Dr. Michael Dunbar, is a professor of surgery at Dalhousie University with cross appointments to biomedical engineering and community health and epidemiology. He completed his orthopedic residency at Dalhousie University with subspecialty training in arthroplasty from the University of Western Ontario. He completed a PhD, not here, but over in Lund, Sweden, as a member of the Swedish Knee Arthroplasty Registry, concentrating on subjective outcomes after knee replacement surgery. He is the author of 300 plus peer reviewed journals, cited journal articles, rather cited over 3000 times and has been invited to deliver over 400 presentations locally and in countries around the world. His credits include the 2010 J. Edward Sampson Award for Outstanding Canadian Orthopedic Researcher over a five-year period, named as one of the top 22 North American knee surgeons by his peers, and one of 10 orthopedic surgeon tech entrepreneurs to know by Becker's Spine Review. He is also a key character in an, ups- an, in an episode of the new podcast from Snack Labs, that's us, called New Wave. <laughs> but best of all, he thinks video games are not a waste of time. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Dunbar. I feel like there should be an applause track or something <laughs> yeah. in there. I could have had one prepped. But I'm glad there's not. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a question here. I have a question, Mike. Yeah. I actually made that video game part up, but, but I, I feel like I asked you. No, well, it's interesting because I just dug, what are your out, thoughts on video I games? dug out my Zelda from... Uh, oh, 
Yes. The dude. gold cartridge for the NES, and we pulled it out, and wow. my 21 year old was in rapture. Yeah. <laughs> and we were both amazed at how uh, relevant the gameplay still was, how playable it is. I yeah. played Ocarina of Time like a year ago from Nintendo 64. Yeah. And on oh. like a, on a, what are they called? Emulators? In an emulator. On an emulator on my laptop. Yeah. But I just, but I just airplayed it to my, to my TV and use my PS5 controller. Isn't it fucking it's sweet amazing. that we live in the future? Yeah, yeah. pretty cool. I mean, and I feel like we're going to be talking a little bit about living in the future with this particular episode. Um, but, but Michael, that was my introduction of you, which is just like, just fucking raffling off all the cool stuff that you have done in your career. And also, by the way, that was like, that was a, like, the width of a hair's worth of what actually is listed on whatever website I found that from. <laughs> um, you, you, but, but give yourself a nice warm little introduction um, to us, even though we, I feel like we kind of know you a little bit, but mostly to our listeners at home, uh, who is Dr. Michael Dunbar? Sure. Okay. So I'm a Haligonian. I was born here, raised here. I lived in a few other parts of the country. I spent most of my life here. I'm the father of two children. Um, recently lost my wife about six months ago, which is, you know, trying times and kind of puts everything in context as, as they said in Spinal Tap, too much fucking context. Mm. Uh, but regardless, that's where we're at. But, uh, I consider myself a clinician first and foremost. I, I like being at the bedside and I like taking care of patients and the rest is sort of gravy. Um, and, um, I think that with respect to uh, looking after patients, you're very fortunate if you can find the things that you're good at in life. And, uh, you know, the reason my career has been successful is that a few of the unique weird things that I can do kind of mesh together. And I was the lucky one who found my path Ooh. that kind of made it all serve. Um, and so I consider myself very fortunate. My, my, my wife used to remind me all the time, like, you know, you're so stupid and everybody thinks you're so smart. <laughs> which is great because she saw lots of the other sides of me and it makes you realize with time and as you mm. have children and things that's there's so many different kinds of intelligence mm -hmm. so although i have a bio like that I, I i i like to remind myself that and you know this is again was the power of my relationship with my wife to, that i'm no better than anybody else and we're all the same i just mm. some of my skills are more obvious than others may have but mm. some other people may have better social intelligence than yeah. i do and different kinds of intelligence as well. So, I mean, just out of curiosity, uh, you know, before we get into, um, you know, like the current, the current state of, of the, the future of medicine and, and kind of what's in the pipeline, um, over the next like few years or what your thoughts are on that. Uh, just, just curiously, like what, what, how did you, how did you kind of find yourself in where you are at today? You know, like what, what would like, going back to your younger years, was there, was there a pivotal moment or like a catalyst to that kind of propelled you into a, a career of medicine? Um, you know, prior to your, your, you know, uh, graduating high school or anything like that. Like, was there, you know, I, I think about the moments of, of, you know, those moments where you, where an elementary school teacher will say something to you that, that somehow really sticks and mm -hmm. sort of, I mean, like, like, like alters your future, you know, like puts so, you on a different path. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Like was, was there anything like that that you can think of? Um, again, I think, uh, I was fortunate because I sort of always, uh, wanted to be a physician and I in particular want to be a surgeon. Yeah. Uh, um, believe it or not, MASH was transformative in terms of, or informative of, of, 
that bravado of what it was to be the surgeon and, and to be the healer and yeah. to be the end of the line, like the buck stop here person. Yeah. For our for all of our Gen Z listeners, what the fuck is MASH? Yeah, MASH was, uh, <laughs> MASH, you know, MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And it was a long running series about uh, a medical surgical field unit in, in Korea during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And it featured on the surgeon, the crew of surgeons. Cool. Mm. Uh, and they were doing meatball surgery. Like they were, you know, dealing with horrendous things every day, flying in from helicopters from war injuries. And it was the psychosocial profile of how you get through that. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, it was a little bit of jocularity with the, uh, profound, uh, nature of what you have to do to to make that happen. So it's in my yearbook, uh, that I'm going to be a surgeon. So, Mm. you know, it was kind of preordained. And then I think in terms of getting into orthopedics, uh, playing sports. And this is not an uncommon story for orthopedic surgeons. I had a knee injury. And so I was introduced to a knee surgeon and had surgery and sort of turned the wheels on because of what that's all about. Cool. Uh, a little like side note, when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I got a knee injury as a paddler and I was brought to you. And, uh, luckily you, you, you pushed me away. You were like, I was like, I need surgery. And you were like, I don't think that's the best course of action. And uh, I think I was resentful because I was like, this guy could have fixed me and he didn't. And it, and it, and it ended my <laughs> paddling career. But now I look- this is <laughs> how we've lured That's right. Yeah. Gotcha, <laughs> motherfucker. Um, <laughs> Just before Halloween at that, right? Uh, but, but in retrospect, I look back now and I go, actually, that was, I mean, that was the, the right call. Well, right? look, there's nothing you can't make worse with a good surgery. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, this is part of what we may wander into is yeah. that, um, you know, there's, what comes with experience as a surgeon is humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think back on my career 25 years ago and I can't believe I was allowed to operate 25 years ago and what I know now. And mm. if you extrapolate that forward and you say, okay, what am I going to think in 10 years time? But what I'm doing today, you go, maybe I should just stop. Like, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of like, in terms of your, your career and your, you know, focusing down the path of knees, I have been somebody in my life that has been extremely fortunate with my knees. And I've looked around, you know, and, you know, a, a, a long, um, long sports career and, and lots of involvement and lots of activities, lots of opportunities to really yeah. do a number on my knees. And at 33, obviously still relatively young, but have had little to no knee issues my whole life. Yeah. And I've looked around at all of the knee issues that happen in sports and just in day to day life. Yeah. And I've kind of been fascinated by the fact that I haven't you know, had that, but what are some of like the, what are some of like the intricacies or interesting things about, about the knee, how it works, how it, Mm. how it, how it's able to like perform. I I look at like running backs in football and think, yeah, man, their knees are just, well, there's a lot to unpack there. The most interesting, one of the most interesting things to me is when you walk through Chicago airport, there's a big brontosaurus dinosaur there. And that knee is not too much different from the knee that's in a human, right? So the basic uh, building blocks of what constitutes a knee have been around for a long time evolutionarily. So that in itself is, is fascinating. But with respect to the sporting issue, um, there's lots of really interesting re- research about that. And, and um, you know, you may well be aware of that there's been an epidemic of young female soccer players blowing out their anterior cruciate ligament. And that's a proprioceptive issue. And this is because theoretically females grow quite quickly go through growth spurt and they kind of outgrow the lever arm with respect to what the neuromuscular control can keep up to. And so they blow up their ACLs at, at alarmingly high rates. And then many of those people go on to have knee issues post uh, downstream, which is 
why the World Health Organization identified knee injury in young female soccer players as one of the top four issues to be worried about internationally, including landmines and ballistic Whoa. missiles and back pain, right? Because it was such an epidemic. And the point being is that we're pushing people too hard into some things. Well, that mm. that that whole point, I mean, I've been really fascinated. I've read something, um, I can't remember where it was or, or exactly, um, but it was it was about the way in which Sports in general are trending. Um, the expectation on athletes is trending younger and younger and younger. So instead of getting, you know, the twelve-year-old that's doing four sports, four right. or five sports, most of them casual, one maybe a little bit more serious. It's like by age eight, you've 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 deleted all the other sports. You're focusing right. intensely on one. You're introducing that sport all year round. There's pressure from parents. Blah 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 blah. blah. And then and then as a result, you're seeing better pro athletes at younger ages, but higher rates of younger retirement mm. right? because you're, you're, you know, you're over exerting the body at a yeah. much earlier age. Yeah. And more importantly, perhaps is you're also excluding. So you, you may be getting more elite people at the top, but you're excluding the true benefit of sport is for it to be ubiquitous for a whole population to be able to go out and kick a ball around or, you know, pick up road hockey or mm. be able to go for a jog or ride a bike and to have that uh, plurality of sports to be uh, kind of a generalist as opposed to a specialist. I've never thought about it like that, which is fascinating because it's it's something that has happened in video games, um, and it's very obvious where you get where you you play a video game, you play an online video game where you're playing with people all around the world in like a you know in a in a group group game like Call of Duty, and you go in and you play when the game comes out, but then. In like two months' time, mm-hmm. if you're not playing every day, yeah. all day, you're not relevant. Smoked. All of a sudden, the game is not fun. Yeah, yeah. because there's too many people. Yeah, unless you're me. Yeah, unless you're you. Naturally, just yeah. Uh, Brian. Yeah, yeah. But Brian I've never thought about sport in that way, and that's a really interesting mm. way to think about it. That you're not. It's not getting the the joy of it is not getting spread out and the benefit of it. Yeah, and mm. then some people actually become intimidated and don't want to take it on because the bar is raised too high, and then we lose the societal benefits of that, of course, which is the general health benefit of and mental health, not just physical mm. health, of having everybody out and being active. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a that's a so, really interesting. You know, and then when you look that. at the NBA, it's interesting the NBA that the incidence of ACL injuries is really quite low for a bunch of seven foot tall people jumping around and land on each other's feet mm. and it's because all the people who had poor proprioception got weeded out and didn't make it to the NBA they all had their injuries on the way mm. so you have a select group that are neurophysiologically different that's part of what it is to be an elite athlete what what is the can you can you break down kind of like the 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 musculature and the ligaments and tendons around the knee and like you know i, I think pretty much everybody pretty much everybody is familiar with an ACL yeah. Uh, or, or at least they've heard the term, might yeah. not know exactly what it does, or in the MCL. Like, what are the things? Like, I have no what, idea. And what, like are, what, and, and what, what are their do, functions? Where they what, are. You know, what do they do yeah. for us when we're, you know, right. playing basketball or playing football or whatever? So in its simplest form, the knee is a hinge joint, but it's more complicated than that because it has three-dimensional motion through space that we should probably just gloss over because it's not that interesting to what we're talking about. But <laughs> And then that's controlled as a lever. It would be by muscle groups above and below. So muscles crossing the knee joint, which are called the origins, and then inserting into the lower leg bone called the tibia. And then there's a biomechanical advantage by firing those. Now, you imagine you just had a, a two pieces of wood together, uh, butted together, together, and you had a rope on one and you pulled, the two pieces of rope would just come apart. So you need some sort of controlling structures to keep them in a concentric fashion as they go through a range of motion. And that's what the ligaments do. So on either side of the knee, so the outside of the knee is called lateral by convention, and on the inside of the knee it's called 
medial. So there's a medial and lateral collateral ligaments. Collateral meaning two of them mm-hmm. parallel. <clears throat> and those basically keep your knee from falling apart from side to side as you're walking. And then with inside the knee are the cruciate ligaments. And those are the anterior. Anterior references the front and posterior is the back. So there's the anterior cruciate ligament, the ACL, and the posterior cruciate ligament, the PCL. And they're called cruciate ligaments because they're cruciform. They're cross-shaped. Mm. So they cross in a, they, they, they cross each other uh, in the middle of the knee. And so basically that keeps the knee from gimbling or rotating apart or t- twisting because they're working against each other. The most appropriate function, however, of the cruciate ligaments is what's called proprioception, which is your ability to know where your knee is in space and the two bones are in relation to each other. Huh. So if you went to the dentist and the reason they tell you not to eat after they freeze you and go, because you chew your cheek off, right? Because you wouldn't feel it. So it's the same thing with the cruciate ligaments. The, the cruciate ligaments allow you to understand where the two bones are so that you don't jam them together in a wrong fashion. Oh. So when you lose your anterior cruciate ligament, uh, your chance of getting osteoarthritis down the road are, are much higher, partly because there's a significant injury at the time of rupturing it, but secondarily because you lose some of the proprioceptive ability to understand right. where your knee is. So if you, if you tear your ACL, does that, does that immediately increase the risk of your MCL being torn because uh, they're so close like because they cross yeah over? yeah there's a thing called a terrible triad where where a bad injury like in a football player getting tackled they'll blow it their medial cruciate their mcl their posterior corner of the knee and their acl uh but it's not that common to hurt the mcl and the acl at the same time right. and, and typically you stretch the mcl and typically you treat the mcl uh non-operatively whereas some people advocate for surgical management of the anterior cruciate ligament which is, which is really quite controversial in itself yeah right uh, because even though you can reconstitute it mechanically, you can't reconstitute the proprioceptive nature of that right. substance once it's gone. Right. So you're just putting a check rope in. You're not giving that biofeedback. It's the same reason why with leprosy, why people get amputations is because they can't feel their feet sure. and their fingers. And so they're microtrauming all day, all the time. Yeah. And then they end up getting, uh, you know, non-healing injuries. We just uh, covered a story of a guy who had blocked artery and uh, he had a new puppy, a puppy bulldog. And, uh, and he was laying on the couch and the puppy chewed his toe like he was snapping and his and his puppy bulldog and ate he got, his toe okay, and he so, had no clue yeah um, so sort of like saved that. his life uh, fucked his toe but saved his life yeah I'm, uh, I'm curious mike like so i play uh soccer and i feel like a lot of the guys on my team have have knee injuries yeah and it seems really common to see a lot of like supportive knee gear for people playing yeah. um and i have this what i have felt to be an irrational fear of doing the same thing to my knee because I see it so much and it feels so common and the style of play in which I play and like the fact that we don't warm up enough and yeah. there's so many like factors that feel like it's dangerous but also it hasn't happened yet so I'm not sure like is that an irrational fear irrational fear that that will happen like what can I do to sort of well, <laughs> take I think care of myself probably the longer you go without an injury the less likely you are to have an injury because it suggests that you would be on the plus side of proprioception, right? Mm. But then you're also aging at the same time. So your balance goes, et cetera. And then there's the bozo factor of the other person out. So it's like riding a motorcycle. It's not you really. It's the issue. It's uh, Mm. someone who doesn't see or the pothole or something that you're going to hit. Right. So that, uh, you know, your chance of of injuring your ACL or your meniscus goes down if you're not on the field, but then your chance of heart disease and depression and other stuff goes up, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a balance. And, but it's also a reason why you should, you know, you get into uh, gentle people's leagues as you get older. 
because you take away the checking in hockey and you take away some of the more aggressive tackles and stuff, or at least you admonish the people who are still playing yeah. at that bozo level because it's just too much on the line. It is. It is funny because you we like we've removed. There's no slide tackling in our league, but like also I I find that you notice more of the the guys who like like I, I have the thought oftentimes when I'm playing like that like that guy should go to therapy or like that guy <laughs> like he thinks that this. Brian, you think everybody should go to therapy. <laughs> You're talking mental therapy in this case, I assume, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. I don't disagree because what are they thinking, right? Like, yeah. what's what's that all about? That's, yeah. It's that's, a lot of, like, anger that comes out in ways where I'm like, ooh, yeah. that's, I don't want to be on the other side that's, of that. That's the bozo factor. You don't yeah. want to be there, no. Yeah. I, uh, I would love to kind of dive into, um, you know, like, your thoughts on the future of healthcare. I know that... Y- there you you have you have an interest in in robotics when it comes to surgery and and uh and I'd love to kind of talk about that but one thing that that I find interesting that you know typically we have a we have a game plan when when our guests come in to talk um but we know that you are so easy at at shooting the shit that we didn't plan anything for today and cool prior to recording you were mentioning you know uh yeah talking about robotics is and and the future of robotics and surgery is is very cool but which like that's the kind of thing when when I hear about robotics and surgery, I immediately have the same kind of thought that I have when I see a really cool sci-fi movie where I go, "Fuck, that's a that's cool, that's a cool idea." Like, look at where we're going. How neat is that? The thing that I don't think about is the the issues that come with as 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 that side of of medicine sort of evolves and gets bigger. There's this loss of the human element that yeah. comes with healthcare, and I never really thought about that until you mentioned it as you came in here this morning. Um, I think it was uh, I want to say it was Sam Harris. I heard him say one time like it's very, it's very hard to make something five percent better, but it's extremely easy to make something twenty percent worse. Sure, yeah, right, right. I mean, I so like I guess before that we get into the human side of things. What does the future of surgery like? What what is it like? What are things in the pipeline right now that that um, that technically could make things far more um, you know effective and efficient when it comes to robotics and things like that? Um, and then I guess like after we kind of get a, a sense of like what the future is looking like on that side of things, I guess what what are your concerns? as we move into that future. Sure. A lot to unpack there as well. But um, I think what the Renaissance is going to be in all of medicine and surgery in particular is that we're moving away out of what was necessary in the past was to treat people to an average. And, and instead we're now able to start to understand who you are as an individual and then approach you as an individual and tailor your medical and your surgical treatment to you as an individual. And you can kind of easily get your head around this if you start thinking about a bell curve. So the first, one of the first things you learn in grade school about statistics is you take your classmates and you line them up and you, you, you measure their height and you draw a graph and you get a bell curve. It's a normal frequency distribution. And most variables within the human body fall on a normal frequency distribution. Uh, so, for example, some people are really bow-legged and some people are knock-kneed, but in, tip, in general, in knee surgery, we make everybody straight. Okay. Now the majority of people are kind of straight, maybe one, one and a half standard deviations, but there's a lot of people who are out on the tails of those frequency distributions who we say, I know you're out there, but I can't put you there with manual instruments and my tools. I can just use my eye to kind of get you Mm. to one position. And it's not to be overly critical of that because, you know, we've gone from barber surgeons with leeches and, you know, newts and toads and stuff (laughs) like that to 
highly reproducible procedures that are teachable to uh, masses of, of surgeons to come. And, and we've changed the lives of millions of people around the world. But we've left people behind on the tails and we've hit a glass ceiling mm-hmm. to how far we can go. Right. So we're going to get to a point where we're going to say, okay, look, your individual alignment of your knee is this. So I'm going to approach it this way. But not only that, now, you, now we can understand the three-dimensional morphology of your knee, meaning the shape it takes falls into a frequency distribution as well in different patterns. So, you know, I can give you a crude example. In, in Dartmouth, across the bridge, we've got a contract with Company X, which makes a, a, generic, a, a proprietary shape of a femur that's stuck on the end of your, of your end of your leg bone. And in Halifax, for sake of argument, we have a contract with another company that makes a different proprietary shape. Ooh. So it's like saying we sell Lee jeans in Dartmouth and Levi jeans in Halifax. Mm-hmm. We got seven sizes of each and we're going to make them fit you. Mm-hmm. And if you say, well, I like Lee jeans, and, but you're putting, it's too bad. You're getting Levi because that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. So the future is going to be saying, well, no, you're actually going to do better with Lee. You're going to do Levi's and you're going to need uh, a custom jeans or bespoke jeans. Le- leotards. Yeah. Or yeah, something, right? right? You know, <laughs> let's get some Lululemon on you, that's right. That's um, right. right? So um, that's what I think is the exciting future, and and we're seeing that already with respect to medicine, with um, you know things like understanding differences in gut flora mm. and what your microbiome is. You know, things we've never thought about before, and they have significant impacts on your serotonin production and mm. uh, your how you process insulin and obesity rates and stuff like that. We know that you know some people can't drink beer; they get uh, they get inebriated immediately. Many people can't drink milk. And those are all, you know, those are all things we kind of ignore when we go to, go to surgery. So kind of jumping ahead a bit here, I think what, what's coming and what's interesting about the robots is not necessarily what you might think the, the robotic part where it's moving around. It's actually going to be more about the machine learning and artificial intelligence on the back end. That's going to impute a myriad of variables ever increasing Ooh. that'll get more and more patient specific. And it's going to spit out an algorithm to say, with this patient, with these factors, this is how you should approach them. This is what pain medication you should give them. This is what antibiotic you should give them. Mm. Uh, Very, very customized all the way down the list. And no human brain is going to be able to process all that information in a timely fashion. We're going to have to, we're going to have to relinquish this to the, to the AI and the machine learning on the back end. I mean, uh, which all sounds awesome. Like it it sounds. But we were having a conversation about, is the average the conversation around the average and how an average is used to treat people in whatever in any in 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 yeah. every sort of arena in medicine? We had a conversation the other day with a woman who had we were talking about an experience of um, of her getting an abortion, and and she was talking about what she was told she could expect um, with like the medication, right. right? And and but the what you can expect is based on the average, of course. And of course, like you said, there's people on the tail ends of on either on either side of the distribution, and she was on one end of the distribution. So to her, even though she was experiencing something that was you know more on the uncommon side of the distribution, to her because she was told what she should expect, you know, she might be dying. Yeah, you know, in her in her in her in her mind, and like all the sort of and and then you can kind of see that. Yeah, I, I say to patients when I'm counseling them sometimes about surgery, your chance of an infection is two percent, but if you get it, it's a hundred percent you, right? So, you know, the odds all go out the window when once it's happened, and and uh, you know, and this is where our previous conversation when we brought up myomar and the bio the biomarkers with muscles, you know, I, that's why I'm interested in in what Rafael is doing is because that's just one of a myriad of things we should, probably should be mm-hmm. plugging in. Mm-hmm 
to understanding who you are before surgery and did the surgery work and, and, you know, very interested in getting into predictive modeling, like saying, you know, your chance of being readmitted is 8%. Your chance of being, uh, getting infection is X. Your chance of coming back to the emergency room of pain crisis is this. Because then in a country like Canada, we can better uh, rationalize and apply limited resources. So, you know, we have nurse practitioners and others who, of course, we're all highly supportive of. But right now, they're sort of applied in an ad hoc fashion. Mm. It'd be better to say that, you know, you're at significant risk for pain complications, et cetera, down the road. Therefore, we should you should be getting a call from the nurse practitioner at day three, because that's when we predict you're going to come back to the emergency room and we can keep you out of the emergency room. Can I'm we hit on that uh, for a second there on, um, on, uh, on, on, on myomar? Like we, you know, we, we, we interviewed you for an episode of our, of our, um, series. That's, that's, uh, um, I don't know when this episode just for is, context, is coming out, it, it came out today. Okay. So, so uh, you can now listen to new wave and today. The f- and the first episode of new wave is the episode on myomar molecular in which you are one that's of right. the get one of the featured guests. Um, and so uh, it's all about muscle health and biomarkers related to, to muscle health. And could you give us a, like a, 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 a primer on like myomar molecular and what, and what myomar molecular is doing and how it applies into your field and what you were just talking about in terms of being able to use that for, um, um, for you know, giving better care, making better decisions. Spoiler alert. Right. Well, I mean, it's day, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's, so it's day of, so I'm it's okay. Joking, I'm joking. <laughs> Well, from from as I understand it, uh, Hafael and our team have come up with uh, some proprietary uh, suite of markers that can now be detected from a urine test that give you insight about if you're losing muscle or if you're recovering muscle, essentially, for sake of argument. Or they could give you a steady state where your muscle mass is. So that could become interesting if you want to go to the gym and you're doing exercise you want to see other than just uh, circumferences, et cetera, how effective am I being at a certain exercise and could I tailor my exercises to change that? You could also look at people at risk of significant sarcopenia or a loss of muscle mass and therefore intervene before they fall or break their hip or other things happen. But in my world, if we go back to this bespoke versus average, um, your knee is a lot like a, a wheel. And, and when we're doing surgery, we're balancing it. And um, if your knee, you know, for sake of argument, or it's probably a better analogy, it's like a pulley with a rope going over it. But if you're canted and I put you straight the rope may be slipping over the side of the of the pulley all the time, and therefore you can never really truly recover your muscle. Mm. Because when you go to pull the muscle, it's slipping. Mm. And so it's not tensioned mm. appropriately. It's not realigned appropriately. And so these, these very subtle things in terms of probably could be picked up on your muscle recovery post-surgery and then when, when you plateau and do some people get to a higher level of recovery or not, and that may be dependent on where we put the fulcrum of the pulley mm-hmm. uh, or the, the lever in your knee. So I think it's a really subtle way to start getting at the next level of iteration about what is the outcome Mm. of our surgery and how iteratively, how did I do at hitting the target I was supposed to hit by looking at a biomarker in terms of a appropriate functional outcome like muscle recovery. Mm. I'm curious curious if there's any challenges around the discussions that you have with patients when you're using like a machine learning model to predict what um, interventions might be the best for them. Like, is there, cause I, to maybe like oversimplify this, I think of like, uh, people using chat GBT for like research papers, for example. Um, you know, they like, it doesn't give back cited sources. So you, you, mm-hmm. you can't necessarily be sure that it's the correct answer. Or even if it is the correct answer, you're not really sure of the process of how it got there to begin with. Um, 
but like it did work. So, so that is right. Are there people who are, um, like what are, what are people's general receptiveness to using machine learning and AI that isn't totally understood to like predict and project what, <laughs> be- what the best interventions will be? Is there any challenges around that? Yeah, I think we're, we're so early in it in medicine that we haven't really crossed the Rubicon on some of those discussion with patients, but a lot of the patients are using it before they get in to see us totally. And they're developing differential diagnoses and, you know, medicine is largely pattern recognition and, and it's based off of knowing a lot of knowledge about what different patterns are and then experience. And I mean, this is one of the strengths of, of a uh, chat GPT, et cetera, is pulling from everything off the literature. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we know there's biases in the literature and all sorts of things that speak to ethnicity and all sorts of really important things that we have to be careful about. And the fact that it's very difficult to interrogate what the answer is. But it can give you, I think the most useful thing in the short term is, is like I said, a differential diagnosis list of possible diagnoses, some of which you may not thought to consider, that then you can go back as the, as the human and, and, and then put that into your own calculations and mm-hmm. say, okay, you know, which of these makes sense with what's in front of me today? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we often have a saying with robots and chat GPT, et cetera, that robots and artificial intelligence aren't going to replace clinicians but the clinicians that use robots and artificial intelligence are going to replace the clinicians that don't. Right. So yeah. I think it's mm. a, it's a symbiosis mm. and this speaks into what we may get in later is that I think that we need to be mindful of what the marriage is between those two. Mm. Uh, really, because when we talk a lot about the black art of surgery and the, the art of medicine and, and, you know, really that's a confidence interval issue, right? That's about how reproducible is, are my results? And, we should be striving to make medicine and surgery in some ways more of a science. So I, if there is a target to hit in your knee, which we're starting to agree that there is a patient-specific target that differs between all of us, then I'm much better off if I can hit that. And that's about accuracy and precision. That's what robots are good at, mm-hmm. right? But what we can't lose is the other side of the equation, which is truly the, the, the psychosocial aspect, the, the, the art of humanity, is how you approach the patient. So... Um, you know, I, I often say to my trainees that I'm I'm confident robots will be doing more and more of the surgery, but it's going to be a long, long time before robots come in and talk to you about surgery and get mm. your consent and hold your hand and understand the yeah. relationship between the wife elbowing her husband and saying, you're in pain all the time. Tell him you're in pain. You know, and these really complex dynamics that go on, the fear in the patient's eye where you say, I, I don't think you should do this right now. Uh, those are things that are still artful. And, and part of the best part of it and associated with that is humility. Right. And, and I think that's honesty and humility and compassion and kindness are, are, are what we should double down on as clinicians, as machine learning, AI and robotics come in and do more and more of the, the heavier lifting that, you know, the celebration of that is that allows us more time to do what's really important. I think that some of the statistics or some of the predictions show that the last fields that machine learning that robots are going to displace are going to be like teachers and nurses and the highly human touch. Mm-hmm. Do you think, part. do you think the education system in its current state will have to change to, um, value more of that, like, that like empathetic sort of compassionate I do. approach? I do. I do. And, uh, you know, I often talk to trainees and cetera and, you know, I'm not perfect. Don't, don't get me wrong, but you know, sometimes you see people who are just kind of are blunt at the bedside etc and you kind of feel like shaking them and go like what are you doing here mm. like what did you think your job was going to be 
porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. What, what, now that's, so that's very interesting. Like we've, we've interviewed hundreds of people for the show who have gone through any number of illnesses, diseases, whatever. And anecdotally, at least like in my mind, I go, it's probably kind of split 50, 50, like their experience with physicians and nursing staff and stuff, less so with nursing staff, more so with physicians that it's like a bit of a 50, 50 split, had a great experience, had a terrible experience, you know? Terrible bedside manner, amazing bedside manner. You know, very much took care of me. Um, seemed like they didn't give a shit. Um, is that, you know, do you, do you, is is that a flaw in the way that that physicians are educated, or a gap in the education of physicians, or or is it or is it a is it a people? Is it just a people thing? And is it the is it yeah, is it a, is it a, is it a people thing or is it something that's lacked in the education? Uh, it's it's you know I'm not on the selection committees and things, so I'd, I'm sure that they're spending significant efforts at trying to look at these things. But you know you can, you know it's like speed dating. You got a little interview with somebody and you got to decide what are they going to be like in ten years after all this training when they're truly in the trenches. Yeah, and you know you can fake empathy and you can fake a lot of this stuff. So you can go on the internet and figure out what the answers are that they're looking for. Yeah. Because uh, medicine is also very, I mean, it attracts like, it attracts a type of person, not a type of person, but it attracts a very high achieving person who like, you know, yeah. may be more susceptible to not having as many social skills yeah. possibly because of that high achieving nature, that kind of like at all costs. Yeah. I kind of joke that I got selected where I am because it's for people with uh, short attention span and shallow egos, right? Cause <laughs> you spend an hour and a half and you make someone radically better. And so it's kind of useful for that kind of personality profile. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you a really personal story. Like my wife died six months ago and, uh, she died of lung cancer. She was a palliative care nurse and, um, non-smoker, healthy, active. It just stunned us. She got a diagnosis in December. She was dead five months later. Mm. And we were promised all the tech, you know, and all the, all the tailored, you know, bespoke drugs that are going to target your tumor and the new radiation machine that has all this widgets and X, Y, and Z. And in the context of her illness, none of that really mattered. What mattered is when my, sorry, my friend pulled us into her office and uh, the surgeon, Madeline implored, and looked at us and said, Mike, I think you should take time off work now. Mm-hmm. I think you should be with your wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what we needed to hear mm-hmm. because that allowed us to refocus and concentrate on the last remaining months we had and then make the best of them. Mm-hmm. And that took humility, right? And that took compassion and kindness, not bravado and all we're gonna you know we're gonna soldier on and do this and it's you know it wasn't a false hope so you know that's that's the best part of surgery and is your fear like that that is the element that might start to erode away as we move into a more that's the threat yeah, yeah for sure and that's but i think it's also an opportunity right so a lot of my younger colleagues get threatened when you talk about what these robots will do and we shouldn't you know this is not dissimilar from what the pilots would have went through 50 years ago and they all would have said there's no way a 
robots flying my plane or a computer, but none of them allowed to be taking you off to Toronto tomorrow if the one of those machines wasn't working because the confidence interval would increase for error, right? Mm. So the safety would go up. Um, and in medicines following that, you know, we're, we're doing maintenance of competence now in surgery. We're doing simulation. We're doing surgical checklists. Uh, that's very analogous to the culture of safety within aviation. Um, so I think that the future surgeon in particular is going to be more like a pilot where they're going to be imputing the flight plan, taking more and more of these variables we talked about and figuring out what those variables are and how they matter. And then, you know, how to run the AI and stuff. And then they're going to monitor and manage the robots while they execute the flight plan. Mm. Okay. But, you know, 25 years into this, uh, you know, I hope nobody's really listening, but frankly, I find surgery boring. Uh, you know, it's done there, done it all. It's kind of like doing dishes and doing big surgeries, like doing pots and pans. It's just mm. like, okay, whatever. What I find more interesting is talking to the patients before surgery and after surgery mm. and understanding their expectations and what's really in their head. The number one reason people are dissatisfied post-surgery, this is stuff I did over in Sweden with that subjective outcomes, is uh, unmet expectations. Mm. So if you get, re say I do your knee surgery and you get readmitted to the hospital with a bad infection, your, your risk of being dissatisfied is 2x. But if I don't meet your expectations, your risk of being, being dissatisfied is 10x. Mm. You're five times more likely to be dissatisfied if I didn't meet your expectations than whether or not you had a major complication. Mm. And it's because people can understand, okay, you're cutting me open. I might get infected. I get that. <laughs> but they don't understand why this sucks. Like, mm -hmm. you know, why can't I run on this? What do you mean I can't play basketball anymore? And, mm. you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, because we haven't taken the time to really get inside the profile of who the individual is, what their desires are, what they want to do and, mm. and what the psychology of what they're getting it's for. I, I had an experience, um, in 2017, uh, and, and you, what you're just saying sort of reminded me of this, but, um, I went in for a hemicolectomy. So I had 75% of my large intestine removed and the surgeon, um, I, I forget her name. Um, but, um, uh, when it was, when it was all over, I came out of, I came out of my sedation and, uh, you know, when I was like done, whatever, like throwing up or like when I, when I could like realize where I was in the world. You saw Brian and I <laughs> wearing, 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 wearing all manner of medical devices. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, for real, you guys came in, you thought it was like going to be funny to like dress up as like, as, as fucking minions we, we found all the ppe sitting outside all of the, the ppe room. this was this was before before people even knew what ppe fucking meant and uh and and i was in no state for laughter i was like guys get the fuck out of here like, you guys i think it was very sobering you guys were like oh uh, really is my bad my we bad. thought it was gonna be funny it yeah. was not um, but, but what happened i came out of my i came out of my sedation and and there was i don't know who i don't remember who it was but somebody on the on the you know the healthcare team came in and said okay so like they you know you're you're we removed 75% of your colon. My first question was, do I need an ostomy? And they go, nope, it, it was successful. You don't need an ostomy. I'm like, thank God. And they were like, but um, there was a little accident. We, uh, they nicked your, your gallbladder and uh, it just couldn't be recovered. So they had so to remove it. We took it out. And so I was like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, don't even know what a gallbladder does. So <laughs> I don't fucking care. Like it doesn't matter to me. I don't need an ostomy. That's all I cared about. So then whatever, a couple of weeks go by and I have a, an appointment with the surgeon to sit down and, and I guess like kind of debrief and for her to kind of check in, like, how am I doing? And 
I remember sitting in her office and her going, so I want to just, I want to apologize to you. And, um, and here's the deal. And she laid out the whole story as to how and why my gallbladder got fucked up. Yep. And she went through the list of things that she did to try to save it. And, you know, went down to the, the, to the, the detail of like calling in a, another specialist who came to look at it. And he went, ah, you know what? Like it's, at this point, like if, if you, you can't leave it in there, it'll kill him. You got to take it out. And so she took it out. And I remember the thing that stuck out to me the most was prior to this meeting with her, I wasn't thinking about my gallbladder at all. But when she sat down and she said, I want to apologize to you. I want to, I want to just tell you that I'm really sorry that I did this and here's how it happened. And this is what I tried to do. And unfortunately we couldn't. And I just want you to be aware because I had no idea about any of that stuff. No one told me that. Like, no one told me the details of what happened. They just said, your gallbladder had to be pulled out. And I remember leaving her office going, that was really fucking cool. I really value the work that she did, especially now because she took the time to apologize to me for something, for, she fucked up during my surgery. Yeah. And she said, sorry? Like, I didn't think that was a thing that surgeons did. I, I, I was like, is that, I feel like there might be, she might have like put herself at risk there or something. I didn't know what the like what no, the, to she, make of it. She, it was the opposite, right? And, and but I thought it was so it was so it was so thoughtful, and I, and I thought this, it was a really like this, great thing to it's do. It's a great example of what I'm talking about. So yeah. that's a, that's a good surgeon, right? And yeah. and we have a saying: patients will forgive you what you tell them; they'll crucify you for what you hide from them. Right. Right. So yeah. you know the right thing to do is disclose. Ooh. Because imagine you're at your family doctor's two years later, getting your blood pressure and they go, Oh, hey, how are you doing with that? Your gallbladder. And you're like, what are you talking about? I don't have a gallbladder. <laughs> right. right. Then right. you, then you'd be pissed. Right. right? You'd be like, what the fuck? What are you talking was about? Was I born without it? Yeah. 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 Right. right. So, yeah. so there is nothing but honesty in this because Ooh. you know, we're imperfect. Right. Ooh. And, and that's the nature of it. And that's why, you know, burnout and substance abuse and divorces are so high in, in surgery because the stakes are so freaking high. Yeah. But we're all imperfect. Yeah. So invariably have these things, but you know, as I reflect back on my career, some of the closest relationships I have with my patients are individuals who I've had complications with. Right. Because they've seen me suffer with them. They've seen me shed a tear. They've mm-hmm. seen the anxiety in my face. They know that I care and I'm with them on that. Mm-hmm. That's right? always the thing in 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 any relationship, especially in, in any relationship where somebody is um, doing something for you or or if they're in a position that is often perceived as like an elevated position. Um, I think it's, I think, uh, I think we had this conversation with somebody we were talking to recently, Natalie Ruskin, Mm. who's like a, she's, she's a success coach. And we were talking about the idea of like, you're a success coach. So I feel like you might be susceptible to feeling like you have to be the most successful person on earth to do your job because (laughs) otherwise people will think that you're a fraud. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, the reality is that one of the things that we are talking about that is creates a close connection with her and her, 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 the people that she works with is telling them that she has days where she doesn't believe in herself, that she wants, that she, that she thinks that she, you know, she, she has this internal monologue and that in any profession of going, Hey, I'm human. You're human. I'm human. Yeah. I'm not that dissimilar to you. Like you said at the beginning, like I've got this set of skills that have, you know, have maybe been, been more obvious. And so I've had this successful career in this, but like we're the same. And that sameness goes a lot further than the, you're on a pedestal, um, dynamic 
because which is which is just a which is just an illusion anyway it's an illusion of course um you know there is there is some utility in it because you have to have some belief in a healer Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and there's a reason shamans have the position they did etc but you know that's why we wear lab coats and put our diplomas up it's part of modern day shamanism Mm. but it's not to be a separator at the end of the day or differentiate us from common humanity right Mm. this is again i'll get personal again but this is a little bit off topic but uh I wrote in my wife's obituary specifically what she died from, and I'm I'm not ashamed to talk about it because often you read people's obituaries, you don't know why they died. Totally. Yeah, and you get to the end, they say donation of the pancreatic society, and go, oh, she must have pancreatic cancer, right? Yeah. So I came right out and said Monica died of lung cancer, and I said there's there's utility in openness about the common battles we collectively face, meaning yeah. like you know we shouldn't be hiding our humanity, right? It's not a shame to have these things happen to you. So mm-hmm. it, it's not easy though to it's hard on the head, you know, when you're the healer and you're supposed to be all that. Now, th- this is, you know, to turn this all around, you know, with your surgery and, or say in the case of knee surgery, uh, what the robots start to allow you to do is put boundary conditions in. So, for example, with the knee, once we've digitized where this is three-dimensionally in space and we register back to a CAT scan, the knee now knows where the artery is in the back of your knee. Or, so the computer knows where the artery Ooh. is in the back of your knee and it puts a green line around it. And when I'm using the saw and pushing it, if I get into that green line, it shuts off. Cool. Wow. So I can't wander into it. Wow. So this is what I was talking about, reducing the confidence interval, right, yeah. of error and making it less of an art and more of a science, more of the reproducibility of the result. So this is, this is the best part right now, but what's happening with knee robotics is that the boundary condition keeps you out of the soft tissue, the collateral ligaments we were talking about, the posterior crucial ligament, and more importantly, the artery. Right. So patients have less pain, less bleeding, shorter length of stay, in addition to the, you know, what what we believe is hitting the right target right. more often, identifying and then hitting it. Can I ask you, like, like when you when you go in for, say you're going in to do a surgery tomorrow, um, are you, like, are we at a point now in, in 2023 where... You're not like you, you don't even touch the, the human. Like, like you, you're sitting in a booth somewhere with like not some yet. fucking VR goggles. And no, no, like it's still, so right now the, the human is still in completely in charge of the robot. Okay. Right? The robot's an assistive device, but that's, you know, that's easy to knock off. Right. So there, it's not hard to imagine a future very soon where that same robot, cause it knows where it is three dimensionally in space can do the whole procedure. Sure. And then the surgeon would just hold a button and let go of the button, like a dead man switch to turn it off. Right. When it but but like, do you, do you, how often do you, are you like using your fingers and hands and like, well, you still like got, you still got to get in. Skin so back and you still got to get into the knee to do it. And then once you set it up, the robot does the rest cool. and then you got to close it on the way out. But right. you know, this also has in a tangential discussion, <clears throat> a lot of surgeons blow out their joints and, you know, I've got bad arthritis in my thumbs and right. you know, that stuff. Uh, reduces your longevity. Is that uh, from work? Yeah, it's from repetitive. Like, yeah, repetitive. Right. Mm-hmm. Using pickups, you know, tweezers and scalpels and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, hitting it with hammers and X-raying and getting radiation on your hands and you know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, one of the minor down the list advantages of robots is it's going to extend our human workforce because it's going to take some of the physicality out of what you do. Sure. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, so. not as long as politicians. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have a question for you, Mike. A little bit. Uh, well, uh, such pretty, a, pretty, such an ageist, pretty <laughs> unrelated in general. But uh, but something that piqued my curiosity that we haven't talked about on the podcast in a long time 
um, and related to surgery is that I had my appendix removed when I was 19. Oh yeah. I um, thought about, I thought about this. I thought about this just moments ago. Oh, that's wonderful. And, uh, yeah. I have an identical twin brother and, uh, I showed up at the hospital and didn't realize that you could, that you didn't need to physically have your health card there. So I used my brothers and, uh, wow. <laughs> and uh the i think i think the record shows that he doesn't have an appendix and, and you should probably clarify that <laughs> that's what we said <laughs> how do you do that like who do you call what it, like uh, like i just got another really, i don't know that's not really like a, uh, Mike's your fox, no, your fox, no. No. is there like a hotline or something? yeah there could be that's yeah. that's like people there. in similar situations yeah, or or you know or just have him go in and then everybody think that he spontaneously regenerated <laughs> it and we'll call him the starfish kid and you know, all this yeah, stuff, yeah. right? I mean, really, Brian, what we, I, I, I feel like this is a missed opportunity so far, but like you should, you should, you should try to get to the bottom of that and document the whole thing. We'll just totally. turn it into an episode. 100%. Yeah. I don't yeah. think it would be easy. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I call that. Especially my- now because your brother doesn't, isn't even a Canadian citizen anymore. I know. I know he lives in, in Dubai. It's not going to be easy because I called MSI to get a new health card 11 times over the course of a year and a half before. Yeah. Dude, I've been know. waiting on mine since, so, uh, since 2019. Yeah. So the, yeah. the first so, time we had this conversation on the your podcast. Your appendix is you was not going to get cleared up quickly. <laughs> the first time we had this conversation on the podcast, I called a number. I don't. I think somebody sent me a number or, or I, I found it online. And I called and I tried to explain the story to them. And I, and almost immediately the person was like, well, this is way above my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking uh, the same thing. And, so. sort of, and, and it was like a, basically a hang up call. <laughs> and so I, I gave up. you need to talk oh, to, goodness, uh, who's the, who's the, who's the woman who runs the Nova Scotia health authority? Karen Oldfield. Yeah. You need to talk to Karen. Talk Oldfield. To Karen. She'd sort yeah. it. She's really good. That's it. <laughs> she runs the whole show. Yeah. yeah. You need, I'll, you I'll need the top dog. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Well, to give a shout out to her, she's a data person and uh, she gets all this robotic stuff and, yeah. you know, what it can bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, what's, what's also interesting about the robot now is, okay, so we've got, we've got this plurality of really interesting preoperative imaging. So we have CT scans and MRIs and PET scans, which make, you know, these really large log files of data uh, that previously just kind of sat by themselves. But now those are imputed into the robot. And then the robot is basically hooked onto the patient and then every move at surgery is recorded. So how much time I took with the saw and what I cut and where I cut, et cetera. Every one of those moves is recorded very much like a black box in an airplane. Yeah, right. Right. So we now have, when you marry those two and then you look at longitudinal outcomes, which is something we're getting pretty good at in Nova Scotia is, you know, what happened to you after your surgery or your medical intervention and who returned to the eMERGE, et cetera. You can start to do some really interesting predictive modeling, data analytics, future interpretation of what that data means. So, I mean, if I see this patient with this scan and this happens at surgery, this is your chance of coming back to the emerge mm. or complication. Or with these preoperative metrics, the last time we did someone like this, uh, it took twice as long. And, and 25% of those patients, we had to convert and go to uh, a different procedure because the robot couldn't do it, right? Mm. So then you could say, okay, well, we better not book four of those in one day because we'll blow up the emergency room two weeks later and mm-hmm. we won't get the cases done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we can get into case mixing. And, and other interesting things that aren't so intuitively obvious to you start thinking about. It. And then when you look at jurisdictions in the United States where efficiency is more important potentially because of economics and things, it's important for all sorts of reasons, but in the States it really matters for economics. You could start to monetize those understandings and learnings and say, totally. okay, look, we can sell you our algorithm to understand who you should book for the day. Yeah, yeah. So this is part of the reason people like Karen and 
Gail Tomlin-Murphy and our Minister of Health and the Premier to an extent are all getting behind robotics because they understand that there's a plurality that can come from it, not just patient care, but understanding the envelope of care. And then when you start talking about machine learning students at Dalhousie and the Center of Excellence in Artificial Intelligence and, uh, you know, this is the kind of data they should be chewing on. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. this and what I say to my surgical colleagues, is like if we work together and tie all these robots together, because to the students, it's just ones and zeros. They don't care if it was your appendix or your knee for the large part. Uh, like we should have the sexiest data in town. Do you ever see the movie The Warriors? I'm talking about dating myself. Mm. You know, with Cyrus, the come gang out leader. And yeah, come on, Warriors. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Donut hates that movie. It scares uh, the shit out of him. You know, it's Cyrus stands up in front of the gang. He goes, "My brothers." He goes, "You're we're, we're killing each other over our turf, my turf, from a pathetic turf, but we got together. The whole city's our turf, right?" Mm. So this is kind of my approach yeah, to the right. surgery. Yeah. Like if we get together and share our data, yeah. like we're going to own the whole thing. Like this is going to be the sexiest data in the province, in yeah. the campus, if not the country. Dunbar is going to be in the corner, just clinking, clinking bottles. bottles yeah, three bottles. <laughs> Oh, yes. yeah. uh, no, I'm more likely to be shot like Cyrus. So, so I'm more worried about, but uh, yeah. So I think that there's a really interesting thing that comes with that. So, and you can't get there from here without the robot. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think this is what a lot of people miss is it's, it's not just a toy in the OR and it's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a system. Right. It's, it's an entire system. Right. It's a fascinating, I, I, I just, we, we've been talking a lot about AI. We talk about a lot about AI all the time. Brian's our resident AI guy, <clears throat> and um, and it elicits a lot of conversation and and um, you know speculation about what the future looks like in general. Yeah. Um, and one thing that uh, that has been brought up is is my sort of you know far future, and who knows? Maybe it's not that far because the rate at which all this stuff is accelerating is you know who knows could be could, faster than Moore's law. Yeah, exactly. Could be could be. Two years from now, I don't know. But in the utopian version of this, of, of AI, where, you know, an artificial general intelligence is created and the la- and that's the last inventions that human makes because that thing is better at making everything else that we need for the future and that it does everything down the supply chain of everything and, you know, you don't need to buy anything anymore and you don't need to make any money anymore and you can just, in that version, I've kind of had this idea like, okay, well, in that version, it seems it. It seems to me like capitalism dies in this in this in this world, and now everybody needs to like figure out what to do. And that's mm-hmm. a big problem. And on the positive side of that, Brian, you said something to me recently that was like, I feel like it would be a creative renaissance and like a, hu- a humanity renaissance. And um and and to that end, like the things that you've talked about of going, we need to figure out, you know, people in, in that world people aren't going to stop getting sick and the robot is not going to console them. Um, and so I, I kind of, I kind of, uh, <laughs> or will they? Yeah. Um, yeah. I no, kind of, I, 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 I hear you. Saying. I mean, if the robot's <laughs> Wally, I, I just, like, You've I, seen her. I think, about, so I think about what you said there about, about the fact that there are things that robots will not do, um, that AI will not do. And we need humans to be able to do those things. Yeah. And, um, but but we may not get as sick though. By the way, you were probably going to jump in on that because the rope, the AI right. may understand that you know when you eat this and you don't sleep like this right. and then you get up late this Ooh. day, you get a migraine every Tuesday. Do you know that? And it's going to spit out a thing to say stop that, yeah. right? And or Ooh. if you keep doing that in sixteen and a half years, you're going to have a big tumor on your head mm. or something like that. That right? is the wild part. Yeah. yeah. Because again, I think it was Sam Harris who described a scenario, a sort of like hypothetical scenario of going 
you think about this, like the far reaches of AI. Let's say you're having a conversation with an AI. The, the AI, you ask the AI a question. In the time that it would take you to formulate a response, it has combed through every piece of information that's ever been available in the wholeness of humanity and has extrapolated a hundred yeah. a thousand years into the future of all the possibilities in the time that it would take you taken you to you know to come up with a response. The problem is, is if it's gonna spit out forty two mm. as the answer, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. Hitchhiker's guide, right? And I don't understand the answer. Well you didn't understand the question. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. What do you yeah. I, I just a personal question before we wrap here. Um what do you what are your plans? Have you thought about your plans like when you retire? Like what? What are you going to do to fill your time? Because I, I just well, I that's feel like scary. Like, that's a scary notion, and we, we might have talked about this last time. But uh, my passion would be if I could choose my path right now, I'd do Master of Fine Arts, and I would do the intersection of humanity and robots and and technology and and what that looks like in, a, yeah. in a mixed Very media cool. format. Yeah, and just kind of explore with that. Kind of push the left brain and the right brain. Well, if you ever uh, hit us hit up, it. hit us up, and we'll <laughs> yeah. we'll turn it into a, a, a podcast. Yeah. That's, that's that's some quality content. All right, right I want to I want to end. On, if you're going to end, I want to I want to bring one other thing up that I think is interesting. Yeah, so, please. So if we're so we're trying to stand up a center of excellence in Nova Scotia health of robotics, and right now we have uh, for any health district we have more robots than anybody in the country. Cool. And we have seventy five percent of the uh, basically the knee robots in the Canada are in Halifax right now. We have three cool. out of, three Whoa. out of four. Okay. So that's starting to get people's attention. And what I'm trying to tell people is like, this is not just about what we talked about, the accuracy and precision. It's also about the health economics of what that means. So we should have economic students. We should have machine learning and AI students. But we should also have philosophy students and ethics students in because there gets to be some really interesting questions. So have you ever heard of the tunnel experiment? No. Okay, so this comes out of Waterloo where they do a lot on AI. And they've developed uh, the tunnel experiment, which is basically, okay, I'm going to pay attention because I'm going to quiz you on this. Um, you're traveling down a road in a autonom- fully autonomous car. You're the only person in it. You're going on a one-lane road. You're about to go in a tunnel, hence the tunnel experiment, and a child runs out in front of the car. Okay, so f- there's no Kobayashi Maru here. You can't fudge this. There's only two answers. You can either, the car can either carry on and run over the child or it can swerve off the side of the road and so it can basically kill the child or kill the driver. What should the car do? Start with you. Oh, fuck, I mean... <sighs> The, the answer is never to kill the child. So, I'm gonna so kill, kill, the, kill, the, kill, the, kill the child. What do you think? I think uh, kill the child. Okay. I, I would have to say kill the child, even though I feel like there's some sort of other okay. answer to this. Do we get to, profound, our, do we get to yes. give our reasoning behind it? No. Okay. So the simple answer is... So, so, so simple the, answer is... You no, guys are fucking... No, wait, wait, wait. wait, 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 wait <laughs> sorry, sorry. Did I say kill the child? I'm going to drive off drive off. Right, so the simple majority of people, when asked this, pick to kill the child. But to your point, it's not the question. The question is, who should program that into the car? So meaning like when you get in the car and you start it up, do you pick that day? I feel like killing the kid today and not me because mm. uh, I got to, you know, I'm going out on big social. Should it be the car maker? If you buy a Honda, mm-hmm. you kill the child. If you buy a BMW, you kill you. Or should it be regulatory groups, right? Mm. So there's a lot of really interesting <laughs> things that come with this that we could be working on as a team that I think makes it Again, way more interesting than just moving that arm around in the OR. Yeah, right. There's right. a lot of cool questions that are engendered wow. by embracing this technology that get us ready for the things like we're talking about in the future when this stuff becomes mm-hmm. fully switched on. And like, like kind of out of hand. We should you know? be thinking yeah. about these questions yeah. before it's out of well, hand. Well, those are the questions that, that, that uh, you know, auto manufacturers are asking themselves right now. Right, yeah. with how, uh, how much automation to put into the Series 3 Tesla. And yeah. 
all that stuff. Surprised he said kill the child. This guy here after just having well, my one. reasoning. Okay, if, if I can give my reasoning, since I gave the uh, you can't since, since I gave the other since I gave Zaya's just keeping you up too late. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, God, good riddance. Um, I is because um, my my inclination was the cost of the car. No, not the cost of the car. <laughs> the cost of the confidence in the technology that uh, is on mass saving. That's very way, forward thinking. Saving ooh. way more lives. Because if the confidence is jeopardized, then more right. people die at, at, on, uh, on the whole. That's very thoughtful. Mm. And that could, kid could have been the next Hitler. Right? <laughs> it could have been. I mean, you, you never know. And I think that's what we're going to leave everyone with today. You just never know. The kid could have been Hitler. Oh, my um, God. Is this what I'm going to be associated with? <laughs> Help me. Uh, Dunbar, Michael Dunbar. Um, you, you, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's just... One of my favorite parts about um, about having started this project with these guys is that so often we get to meet really incredible and interesting and fun people, and you are at the you know you're you're at the top of that list of of one of the most um, one of the most interesting interesting people we've we've had on the show and and, and have had the the pleasure to meet, and uh, and I'm just so so fortunate and so grateful uh, that you take time in your schedule to come in and shoot the shit with a couple of well, I, I'm appreciated. I'm very appreciative of your interest, and uh, you know we're all in this together, common humanity, and uh, I'm really grateful to spend some time. It was a lot of fun. Great. Appreciate Thanks, it. Man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Doctor Michael Dunbar. What a cool guy, huh? Um, like I said at the very top of the episode, stick around. Uh, right after this. Uh, we're going to throw to the trailer to the new show that Brian Taylor and myself have produced. We've been working tirelessly uh, over this show for the past few months, and we're really excited that it launches today. It's called New Wave. So on Apple Podcasts, go give it a follow. On Spotify, go give it a follow. And uh, leave a rating and a review. Support your boys. You know what I'm saying? So without further ado, here's the trailer to the latest show that we are producing here at Snack. Enjoy. We live in a world that is grappling with monumental challenges. At some point, there will be 10 billion people on this planet. Food scarcity. Researchers have published studies that we might run out of fish in by 2050. Aging populations. After breaking your hip, 25 to 33% of people are dead over age 65, no matter what you do. And debilitating diseases. Close to 1 billion people globally suffer from sleep apnea. These are serious problems. Welcome to New Wave, the podcast series from Life Sciences Nova Scotia and Snack Labs that dives deep beneath the surface to explore the explosion of the life sciences community in Nova Scotia and their ambitions of global proportions. Hi, I'm Mark St. Ange. Uh, my name is Mike Dunbar. I'm Stephanie Colombo. Uh, my name is Rafael Andrade. New Wave is shedding light on the fascinating work emerging from the life sciences community through the power of storytelling. One of my aunts that pretty much helped raise me, she had a fall, and because of that fall, she, she died. The human experience. The companies that I've founded have taught me something. Right, something really important that led to the next thing. And the relentless pursuit of making world-changing science and the problems it solves 
accessible to everyone. In the very beginning of blowing up a party balloon, you have to push really hard and then it gets easier. Same as the airway. Come with us as we discover a new wave of science and innovators that are swelling on the shores of Nova Scotia. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.